When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, Episode 62, The Federalist Revolts. In the last three episodes, we witnessed the purge of the Girondins. Detained by decree, some refused to comply. Fleeing to the provinces, flags of rebellion were raised across the nation. The Federalist Revolts had begun. For the next half a dozen or so episodes, we will depart from what has been a focus on the capital. With so many events occurring in mid-1793, it's impossible to cover them chronologically, and so instead, we'll be covering them thematically. The full explanation can be found in a recent behind-the-scenes video for community members, but the short version is as follows. Initially, we'll focus on the Federalist revolts. In this episode, we'll examine these insurrections at a high level before we subsequently explore each of the major rebellions individually. Upon completing the Federalist Revolts, we'll then check in both with the Civil War in the Vendée and the Foreign War on the Frontiers, before returning to Paris to explore the Constitution of 1793 and the assassination of one very prominent Jacobin. So that's the agenda for the next several months, and I'm looking forward to using this time to explore the French Revolution in all of France, rather than in Paris alone. Of course, all of this is only possible thanks to the support of the Grey History community. So thank you so much to every community member doing their part to keep Grey History on the air. Also, thank you so much to those people who have been leaving written reviews, sharing the show on social media, writing in words of encouragement, and sending in one-off donations. It's the support of the community that keeps Grey History going, and so thank you so much for that support. Before I introduce the newest members of the community, a reminder that you can do your part for keeping Grey History on the air by following the link in the show notes and on the website. It's with immense pleasure that I get to introduce the newest members of the Grey History community. A warm welcome to the newest virtuous citizens, Sinny, John, Natalie, Michael, Adam, Chimp Ninja, Chachi, Omer, David, Gustavo, and Andrew T. Another warm welcome to the newest true revolutionaries, Jeffrey, Brandon, Zebinyak, and Gary. I hope you all enjoyed your access to this episode a full two weeks ahead of the public feed as well as your early access to episode 63, The North Rebels, right now. Of course, all revolutions need their champions, and so a big thank you to Carl for increasing his pledge and becoming a champion of the people. Carl now joins the amazing Cindy, George, Tim, Mark, William, Laura, Daniel, Monica, Joel, Susan, Adam, Tom, Eyal, Harold, David, Howard, Alistair, and Kevin. Finally, a humongous welcome to Andrew, 
who joins the pantheon of greats, the heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff, Olga, Kevin, Noel, and Scott. Once again, thank you all so much for supporting Grey History, as I cannot stress enough that none of this would be possible without your generous support of the podcast. Anyway, I am absolutely thrilled to bring you the Federalist Revolts, so let's get into it. Welcome to Grey History, Episode 62, The Federalist Revolts. To arms, Frenchmen, to arms. The national representation is violated. Your deputies are in irons. So began the manifesto of the General Committee of Marseille. Denouncing the criminality of the Paris Commune, the newly installed authorities of the great Mediterranean city were both disgusted and dismayed. Over the preceding days, the city's residents had received the most alarming news. Encircled by cannons and bayonets, the national representation had been defiled by lawlessness and anarchy. Worse still, the nation's representatives and Marseille's representatives had been purged from the national government, prescribed by the insurgents of Paris and decreed for arrest. With the convention being assaulted by criminality in the capital, the authorities of Marseille had reached a simple conclusion. Paris had succumbed to Jacobin tyranny. Dozens of departments agreed. From the west to the east, from the north to the south, cries for rebellion erupted across the nation. Paris had attacked the Republic. The Republic would now attack Paris. In the aftermath of the purge of the Girondins on the 2nd of June, 1793, Dozens of departments were incensed. The national representation had been violated in the capital, and the protests came thick and fast. Historians dispute as to how many of the nation's 84 departments objected to the prescriptions, but historian Peter McPhee places the number at 60. Although it will become evident why I find that figure to be a little misleading, The fact that respected historians often land at figures representing some 70% of the nation's departments demonstrate just how widespread the discontent was. But for a subset of the enraged provincials, words were not enough. According to the Marseille Manifesto, Paris prepared chains for the entire nation, and the Marseille authorities were not alone in decrying Jacobin tyranny. Joined by the leading towns and cities of their regions, more than a dozen departmental authorities reached not for their pens, but for their weapons, declaring that they would march on the capital and form an alternative constitutional convention. Their goal was singular, 
to crush the Jacobins of Paris. Within weeks, Lyon, Marseille and Bordeaux, the three largest cities of France after Paris, had all proclaimed a state of insurrection. Breaking with the capital, much of the north had done so as well, as did the great naval port of Toulon in the south. Seemingly overnight, the Republic had been plunged into a nationwide civil war. Already plagued by the royalist rebels in the Vendée, and menaced by the advancing armies of Austria, Prussia, Spain and England, the eruption of such conflict delivered the revolution's greatest threat to date. How had it come to this? And how would the Republic survive? For the next several episodes, we will be examining the Great Federalist Revolts of 1793. A major turning point in the revolution, the armed rebellions of more than a dozen departments is a defining development in the character and trajectory of the French Revolution. But by exploring the events in Normandy, Lyon, Marseille, Bordeaux and Toulon, we'll be doing much more than just retelling the civil wars of 1793. As we unpack each revolt, we'll seek to rectify a common flaw in retellings of the revolutionary era. Despite transforming an entire nation, and indeed an entire continent, too often the French Revolution is retold as if it's the Parisian Revolution. Too often, historians, authors and documentary series focus squarely on the events of Paris, and only detour when important rebellions and battles warrant a brief excursion from the capital. In exploring the Federalist revolts over the next half a dozen episodes, we'll not only tour the great cities and towns of France in mid-1793, but take the opportunity to survey the impact and development of the revolution in these localities since the summer of 1789. In short, we'll be exploring the various similarities and considerable differences in how the revolution looked, felt, and evolved across the nation as a whole. But, before we can do a deep dive into the urban centres of the French nation, we absolutely must accustom ourselves with the endless historical disputes surrounding the Federalist revolts. And, I do mean endless. From its terminology, to its character, from its objectives to its impacts, the variety of disagreement amongst scholars on the Federalist revolts is about as widespread as the revolts themselves. So, for the rest of this episode, we're going to be exploring the national and local causes of the Federalist revolts, before we then unpack just what precisely we mean by the word federalism. That latter point may seem obvious, but in the French Revolution, the word has pretty much the exact opposite meaning as its meaning in the context of early American history. Having discussed Federalism 101, we'll then examine how and when something that was once celebrated became the most vile form of treachery, before we wrap up with debates surrounding the objectives of the Federalist rebels. Once we've done that, will then be in a position to explore the rebellions themselves, 
and the broader revolutionary experiences of five cities and regions across France. And yes, for my Napoleon fans in the audience, don't worry, your time is indeed near. So let's start with the contested origins of the Federalist revolts. In some ways, the seeds of the Federalist revolts were planted long before the purge of the Girondins in June 1793. Since the earliest days of the National Convention, the September prior, tensions between the departments and the capital had been on the rise. The Girondins had quickly positioned themselves as the champions of the regions, an easy task given the provincial nature of their leadership. No leading Girondin represented Paris, with many figures instead representing the departments that encompassed or neighboured the great cities of Lyon, Marseille and Bordeaux, as well as the Norman commercial centres. In contrast, nearly all of the prominent Jacobins represented Paris, including Robespierre, Danton and Marat. As the Jacobins quickly monopolised the support of the capital's revolutionary cohorts, the new factional dynamics of the convention exacerbated long-held rivalries and resentments between the metropole and its provinces. Critically, this exasperation commenced pretty much from day one. Historian Timothy Tackett notes that from the earliest weeks of the convention, the Girondins had done everything in their power to influence provincial politics to their advantage. He cites, as an example, the Girondins' initial attempts to summon a departmental guard consisting of volunteers from across France. The plan, discussed in episode 45, would see the departments protect Paris. But protect it from what? This was the retort of the Jacobins, who queried the necessity of such an institution. For the Girondins, the answer was clear. The nation's representatives needed sanctuary from the anarchy and radicalism of the capital, which had so recently manifested itself in the bloody September massacres. Massacres which they believed they had only narrowly survived. Thus, while the attempt to create a departmental guard failed to counter the growing influence of the Parisian Saint-Culottes and the emerging enraged movement, it did send a message to the departments. Clearly, in the eyes of their deputies, Paris was a threat to the Republic's government. Consequently, Paris was a threat to the liberty of the nation. Undeterred by their failures, the Girondins hardly threw in the towel. The deputies worked overtime to portray themselves as the champions of France and the Jacobins as merely partisans of Paris. As tensions rose in the capital, they redoubled their efforts to influence opinions in their home constituencies, especially in the spring of 1793. As the Parisian radicals demanded the expulsion of the Girondins, and as the nation faced new setbacks, both on the frontiers and in the new civil war in the Vendée, the Girondins regularly made appeals to their supporters back home. Vernieu, for example, wrote to his constituents in Bordeaux regularly in the lead-up to his arrest. The contents were alarming, both for the recipients and for the Jacobins, who viewed them as treasonous. 
Men of the Gironde, rise up. The convention has been weak only because she has been abandoned. Support her against the furies who menace her. Then the convention will be truly worthy of the French people. Men of the Gironde, there is not a moment to lose. If you remain apathetic, arms folded, then the chains have been prepared and crime will reign. These sentiments of a weak convention, of a nation destined for chains and crimes, can be found in other correspondence of Girondin deputies. Even as early as January, several deputies from the Department of Calvados, centred on the northwestern commercial town of Caen, were informing their constituents that the then war minister, Pash, was not above suspicion. It is therefore ironic that Pash, who would of course go on to become mayor of Paris, later presented to the convention the demand to arrest the so-called 22 Girondin deputies, and then subsequently played a role in purging those deputies in the following months. Critically, in an age before radio, television, and even the telegram, these personal letters were a key source of news for the provincial authorities alongside the newspapers which some deputies published and distributed, having routinely heard the same message of Jacobin tyranny, of Parisian lawlessness, of a convention intimidated and threatened by mobs who sought the dictatorship of the mountain, many departmental authorities were alarmed. Naturally, they sought to support their besieged representatives, often answering explicit calls for help. For example, the authorities of Khan communicated their resolve to support their deputies in Paris, should the factionalism consuming the city continue to impede the work of the nation's representatives. In mid-April, they wrote to their deputies and made it clear that Paris exerting undue influence on the deliberations of the convention was unacceptable. Elected of the people, you know it. France is not in Paris. She is formed by 84 departments. If in one you are insulted, in another you will be respected, obeyed. There you will find shelter from the furore and plots of rascals. There you will enjoy your rights and liberty. There you will live among the French. Republicans, brothers who will know how to ward off from you daggers and assassins. But, before leaving the first cradle of liberty, make a final effort. Brave the storms, spurn the rumours of the few careerists, punish the conspirators, work to give sage laws to a great people. Save your country, obtain happiness for your fellow citizens. Above all, make yourselves respected. And if a few scoundrels again lift their blasphemous voices, think of us, speak, and you will be avenged. Such letters, and indeed delegations, sent to Paris were by no means uncommon. Clearly, some in the departments not only decried the perceived factionalism, violence, and anarchy of the capital, but like their Girondin representatives, attributed this misfortune 
to Jacobin intrigues. Critically, it's clear that the departments recognised the increasing tensions in the capital and the growing likelihood that blood could soon be spilt. After all, the authorities of Khan didn't promise to protect their deputies, but rather to avenge them. It's due to letters like these that the Girondin deputy Isna could declare with confidence that Paris would be destroyed by the departments should there be an attack on the National Convention. The departments were literally stating as such. Thus, when the Girondins were finally purged at the start of June, when the national representation was besieged by thousands of Parisians, it wasn't a great surprise that the occasion triggered outrage and dismay in the departments. The insurrectionists knew full well that the expulsion and arrest of leading Girondins carried considerable risks, and the question for many Jacobins was not if the departments would rebel, but rather how many. As historian Paul Hansen, an expert on the Federalist revolts, remarked, The Montagnard deputies had every reason to believe that support in the departments for the prescribed Girondins would be widespread, and early indications confirmed those fears. In this way, the fractures and feuds of national politics helped to trigger the so-called Federalist revolts. The nation's representatives had been forced into submission and the departments were willing to use those same means to rectify what they perceived to be as a great and tyrannical injustice. Yet, we must always remember that a catalyst and a cause are two different things. While the singular term used for these insurrections may convey a sense of commonality across the rebellious regions, these revolts are in fact characterised to a large extent by local issues. National politics may have helped to trigger some of the revolts, but they don't necessarily explain why certain regions rebelled while others remained silent or even vocally supportive of the mountain and the events of 2 June. Nor does national politics explain why Lyon and Marseille had both experienced municipal revolutions prior to the purging of the Girondins in June 1793. Clearly, the purge of the Girondins didn't trigger these events, which happened before the purge itself. Interestingly, despite scholars disagreeing on pretty much every aspect of the Federalist revolts, the one thing that seems to be a broad consensus is the criticality of local issues in explaining these rebellions. Historians from across the ideological spectrum stress the centrality of local dynamics. Local politics, local economies, local geographies in determining the response of individual departments across the country. In many ways, it's these factors which play an outsized role in facilitating the transformation of anger and discontent into full-fledged insurrection. Modern revisionist historians such as Timothy Tackett and Paul Hansen claim that the revolts of the summer of 1793 were rooted as much in local conflicts 
as in national politics. Likewise, Marxist historians such as George Lefebvre and Albert Mati highlight the local particularisms in the revolt's origins. It's for this reason that when we explore the Federalist revolts by region, expect to see revolts that, yes, share some similarities, but also look markedly different. Going further than other scholars is historian Alan Forrest, a modern British historian with an expertise in the military and political aspects of both revolutionary and Napoleonic France. Forrest claims that the Federalist revolts were a local movement, born out of local circumstances. Furthermore, he places central emphasis on the primacy of local factors, boldly asserting that many revolts in the South were pursued with little reference to national politics. But if in these cases federalism can be shown to have developed out of national politics, it would be rash to equate the movement as a whole with the Girondin interest nationally or with the growth of factions in the convention. That was the story which the Jacobin leaders chose to put around, a central plank of their propaganda campaign against the provincial cities. Elsewhere, the anti-Jacobin tone of much of the discourse of revolt had its roots less in national than in local politics, in the turbulence of the early revolution and the rise of faction fighting locally. It is this, for instance, that explains the uprisings in Lyon and Marseille, initiated by moderate Republicans on the municipal council and in the sections against local Jacobin cliques, which took place in the last days of May, before news of events in Paris could possibly have reached them. If the Lyonnais were anti-Jacobin, it was their own Jacobins who were the target of their disaffection, men who, they believed, had abused their influence with a small minority of the city's sections to seize power and impose their views on their fellow citizens. Here, as in much of the Mediterranean, the origins of the revolt lie less in relations with the capital than in the bitterness of indigenous politics. In Toulon, to take another example, the revolt can be explained as the legacy of a bruising struggle between radicals and moderates in July and August of 1792 which had allowed the radical faction to seize power, leaving a number of prominent conservatives murdered on the city streets. Here, as in other southern cities, the Federalist Revolt was an act of vengeance, pursued with little reference to the wider world. It is perhaps best seen as a dialectic of recurring violence throughout the revolutionary decade. While not every historian places the same emphasis as Forrest on the primacy of local issues, the political, social, economic, geographic and even interpersonal characteristics of communities across France played an undeniable role in shaping the Federalist revolts. It's for this reason that over the next several episodes, we'll be taking the time to explore these local factors as we investigate the civil wars that consume the nation. It's these factors that will not only help us understand the French Revolution in 1793, but the experiences of the revolution more broadly outside of the confines of the capital.
But before we can examine the infamous, ill-fated and fascinating rebellions of mid-1793, we first need to tackle some of the thorniest issues of the Federalist revolts. What exactly was Federalism? And why had the principles of Federalism transformed from the celebrated to the despised? Furthermore, to what extent did the insurrections, which are grouped under one singular title, actually share a common program with common objectives? When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Surprisingly, for a term so loosely thrown around in the French Revolution, federalism is actually a difficult term to define. In part, this is because the word once had positive connotations in revolutionary France, before becoming synonymous with the most extreme form of treason. Compounding the issue is that while the Jacobins accused the Girondins of promoting federalism, the insurrectionists themselves went out of their way to avoid the label, actively denouncing it and doing their utmost to disprove the claims. Add into the mix that the word has a completely different meaning in the context of early American politics in the late 18th century, and what we have here is a terminology conundrum that we need to explore. So, to kick us off on our linguistic adventure, we're actually going to start in 18th century America rather than revolutionary France. But to take us there, we're going to quickly run through Nation Creation 101. Broadly speaking, a federation is a political entity which consists of a union of smaller, partially self-governing entities. Now, that may sound like complex jargon, but in actuality, it's pretty simple. Take, for example, what I would argue is the most famous federation in the world, the United States of America. The US is a federation of 50 states, where these partially self-governing entities, the states, have banded together under a central federal government. Generally, federations have a written constitution, which codifies the division of power between the component entities and the federal government, and formalizes the partially self-governing nature of the component entities. In the context of the United States, the Constitution explicitly itemizes 
many of the responsibilities of the federal government, as well as the responsibilities of the states. Additionally, these constitutions often entrench these arrangements in such a way that neither the federal government nor the component entities can unilaterally alter these powers and prerogatives. For example, in the United States, the federal government cannot unilaterally make changes to the Constitution, as three-quarters of the states must ratify an amendment. Similar situations exist in federations across the world. Australia, Canada, Mexico and Germany are all examples of states or provinces that have united to form a federation. Although federations usually consist of states, provinces or similar regional entities, they can also consist of countries, such as the former Soviet Union. And yes, for those wondering, this is why the national government in the United States, Canada and Australia and the like, are often referred to as the federal government, because these are nations which are federations, hence the term federal government. As an interesting aside, only about 15% of the world's countries are federations, which I must say caught me by surprise. I definitely anticipated that number to be higher. So with that pub trivia winner out of the way, it's clear that not all nations are federations, where groups of states, provinces or other regional entities have formed a union and established a federal government. A common alternative used by the vast majority of the world's nations, is what we would call a unitary state. In a unitary state, a country's supreme authority is vested completely in the national government. In these nations, there may still be regions or provinces, but these entities are essentially administrative divisions, and the national government can create, abolish, or override these administrations pretty much whenever they please. Many nations in Europe, Africa and Asia are unitary states, and they can be both monarchies, such as Japan, Morocco and the Netherlands, as well as republics, such as Indonesia, Turkey and Colombia. Sometimes, unitary states may even appear to be federations, such as the United Kingdom. But in this instance, the powers that have been devolved to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland were initiated by the UK's Parliament. Parliament could unilaterally take them back at any moment, as well as expand them or just reorganise them however it sees fit. This is why the UK is a unitary state and not a federation. Such actions would be impossible for the federal government of the United States, because it's a union of partially self-governing entities, and only with the approval of a supermajority of the states can any changes actually be made to the existing constitutional arrangements. Now, believe it or not, this is not one of my famous digressions, and I have taken us down this rabbit hole for a reason. We're going to be hearing the word federalism in some way, shape or form for like the next several dozen episodes. It is critically important to the revolution in 1793, 1794. In fact, it's just critically important to the history of France henceforth. So it's important that we understand what it means. It's also important to preempt the inevitable confusion that will arise from some listeners who know federalism in the context of American history, because in that context, it more or less has the exact opposite meaning 
than in the French Revolution. So now that we know what a federation is, let's quickly cover the objectives of Federalists. In the context of American history, a Federalist is generally seen as someone who wanted to create and empower a strong federal government. Early examples of Federalist initiatives, such as those during the Confederation period, include the advocacy for the creation of a powerful executive in the form of the presidency, as well as granting the federal government the right to raise taxes. Now, the reason why federalism equates to empowering the central government in the context of American history is all because of one's starting point. Initially, the states were essentially self-governing entities. They were independent and free. Consequently, in lobbying for the creation of a federal union with a muscular central government, one was automatically advocating for greater centralization. After all, one was taking powers from these independent states and granting them to a new federal government. Likewise, in seeking to strengthen the new federal government through policies like creating a national bank, federalists were once again advocating for greater centralization. Thus, the term federalist in American history is associated with those advocating for greater centralization and greater powers for the federal government. But revolutionary France had a very different starting point. France was, and still is, a unitary state. It was a nation governed exclusively by the supreme authority of the national government. If you recall, the National Assembly in Paris had unilaterally abolished the old regime's provinces, and then it unilaterally created the departments of France. These departments, their borders, their capitals, their administrations, their responsibilities, all of it had been determined by Paris. Consequently, unlike the national government in America, the national government in France could change these attributes whenever it liked. Thus, in the context of France, federalism did not refer to empowering the central government because the central government was already all-powerful. Instead, federalism referred to weakening the central government as in order to create a federation of partially self-governing entities, a process of decentralization would have to occur. Power would have to be dispersed to regional and local entities at the expense of the national government. In short, France had the polar opposite starting point of America, and therefore, federalist principles were actually advocating decentralization rather than centralization. Now, as you can imagine, none of this is binary, and there's shades in which one could hypothetically federalize France. On a minor level, perhaps it could be curtailing the powers of the national government to unilaterally change the borders, elections, and administrations of the departments. In this sense, it would be formalizing greater autonomy for local administrations and not have their entire existence erased by a stroke of a pen in Paris. At a more aggressive level, perhaps it meant empowering departments with specific prerogatives and powers, a nod towards the so-called state rights enjoyed by the component entities of the United States. In fact, at its most extreme, 
perhaps it meant the separation of France into state-like entities, which were then joined in union by a federation, but were also free to pursue very different laws on matters not specifically reserved for the federal government. Now, as we'll see shortly, one of the biggest debates amongst historians is not just what proponents of French federalism wanted, but in fact, to what extent French federalists even existed at all. Yes, the Jacobins saw federalists everywhere, but many so-called federalists were adamant that they despised federalism to its core. Thus, without getting into the hotly disputed programs of the Federalist revolts right now, the point I want to make here is as follows. In the context of the French Revolution, federalism is a movement advocating decentralization. It's one which sought to empower the peripheries at the expense of the capital. Because France started off as a singular political entity, the term federalism has the exact opposite meaning compared to its use in America, despite both federalist movements occurring simultaneously. It's all to do with starting points. In America, states needed to create a central government in order to create a federation. But in France, the national government would need to create smaller, component entities. It would need to create the states, if you like, if it wished to pursue a federation as well. So, when in doubt, remember that a federation is a political entity made up of a union of smaller entities, and therefore federalists, in the context of the French Revolution, were accused of wanting to fracture the one and indivisible republic into these smaller entities. Now, these accusations of wanting to break up the Republic of France and of wanting to empower local authorities at the expense of the central government brings us to two key questions. Why had federalism become such a dirty word? And when did this transition occur? If we start with the latter, it's worth noting that such ideas had not always been considered the supreme heresy of the Republic, to use the rather dramatic phrase of historian Robert Palmer. After all, in the initial years of the Revolution, federalism and decentralization more broadly were not just tolerated, but in fact actively celebrated. If you recall, in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Bastille, a municipal revolution had swept across France. Following the example set by the electors of Paris, which had installed themselves as the city's new municipal government in the days prior to the Bastille's demise, electoral assemblies throughout the nation unilaterally replaced the existing municipal authorities, sweeping aside royal officials and in some cases even placing them under arrest. Despite being originally assembled for the purpose of electing representatives to the Estates General, these electoral assemblies often seized not just the initiative, but considerable power as well. In short order, the new local governments were quickly creating and deploying militias and dealing with the so-called Great Fear which menaced France in July and August 1789. This revolution in municipal governments, one which imitated the capital, but by no means was ordered by it, was celebrated with delight. So too was the decentralisation and greater regional autonomy 
that such developments naturally promoted. Additionally, these new municipal authorities were far from the only development which fostered greater autonomy in the provinces. Perhaps most visibly, there was the new National Guard. Created from thin air, these local militias had not been decreed by the capital, but rather retrospectively endorsed by the central government. Furthermore, these decentralised forces subsequently held festivals of federation throughout late 1789 and early 1790. You may recall that National Guard units from neighbouring departments would often gather together, sometimes in their thousands, to perform so-called federation ceremonies. As discussed all the way back in episode 18, these festivals saw municipalities set aside their historic differences to join in unions and proclaim for all to hear their intentions to come to the defence of the other should assistance be required. These federation ceremonies, also referred to as confederations, unions, coalitions, reconciliations, and ceremonies of fraternity or patriotism, were actively celebrated by the new regime. Here, in 1789 and 1790, the idea of France consisting of local communities with independent armed forces, acting with significant autonomy and banding together for common prosperity and security, was an idea that was cherished and held up as a sign of a prosperous and popular revolution. In fact, the National Assembly had actively encouraged these ceremonies. For example, it was with great joy and fanfare that in May 1790, the city of Lyon, a future leader of the Federalist revolts, held a federation festival with some 50,000 guardsmen from neighbouring communities. Furthermore, just two months later, the first major festival of the revolution, the Fête de la Fédération, held on the anniversary of the fall of the Bastille in Paris, was exactly that, the festival of the Federation, an event which Parisians famously worked overtime to enable, and much was made of King Louis' participation in the construction efforts. Thus, in the early years of the revolution, the idea of France being a federal nation, one of communities united, was not just tolerated, but encouraged. At no point was the word federalism or its ideas of greater regional autonomy and assertiveness seen as detrimental to the revolutionary project. On the contrary, these ceremonies, these celebrations of federations, were the very definition of revolutionary and patriotic acts. Fast forward to 1791, federalism was still something to be celebrated, perhaps even something to aspire towards. Although the Jacobins would come to denounce it with passion and fury, at this point in time, some were advocating federalist principles. The Jacobin deputy B.U. Varenne, for example, a future member of the Convention's Committee of Public Safety, promoted greater powers for local authorities in response to the king's treacherous flight to Varenne. Observing the failures of the constitutional monarchy, B.U. Varenne had proposed that the yet-to-be-finalised Constitution of 1791 could be revised to empower regional administrations. It is therefore with some irony 
that one of the great antagonists of the Girondins and their alleged Federalist program had himself advocated Federalist principles in the years prior. By 1792, Federalism remained associated with patriotic and pro-revolutionary sentiments. After all, it was the federes, the volunteers from the departments, which had played such a critical role in overthrowing the monarchy on the 10th of August. Here, the armed forces of the departments were a source of inspiration, of celebration, of revolutionary heroism. So, why is it that less than a year after the fall of the monarchy, federalism had become one of the great crimes of the French Republic? And when did this change occur? One theory, proposed by historian Michael Sydenham, is that this transition occurred in September 1792, in the aftermath of the fall of the monarchy and in the lead-up to the convention's inauguration. Acknowledging that the word federal had hitherto signified patriotic unity, the term quickly evolved into one of vilification and prescription. If you analyse the debates of the Jacobin Club in early September, one already sees the word's associations transforming rapidly, losing almost overnight their patriotic and unifying connotations. While it's difficult to place an exact date on the transition, the shift from all things federal being celebrated to scorned is seen clearly in the factional fighting in the following spring. In April 1793, when the Parisian mayor Pache led a delegation on behalf of the Parisian sections to first demand the arrest of the so-called 22, the prominent Jacobin accused the Girondin leadership of conspiring with the traitors de Maurier to federalise France by granting excessive autonomy to the departments. Joining Pache in these allegations were other noteworthy Jacobins, such as Danton's ally Demolard, one of the mountain's most notable journalists. In mid-May, Demolard accused the Girondins of a long list of crimes. In addition to being partisans of royalty and the accomplices of the treasonist de Maurier, the deputy accused the Girondins of wanting to divide France into 20 or 30 Federalist republics. Going further than Pasha's accusations that the Girondins merely wanted to grant excessive autonomy to the departments, here was an accusation that the Girondins sought to create new republics, jeopardising the fundamental unity and indivisibility of the French nation. But in a fascinating twist, leading Girondins were also denouncing the concept of federalism and adamant that they wanted nothing of the sort. The Girondin deputy Condorcet, for example, was the moving force behind the Girondin-endorsed constitutional project of February 1793. This constitutional project never became a republican constitution, but it does have an important impact on the eventual constitution of 1793 that the Jacobins introduced shortly after purging the Girondins. In this Girondin draft, Condorcet was clear that he rejected Federalist principles, and he noted the deficiencies he saw in the Constitution of the United States. What this means is that as the concepts of Federalism morphed from admired to despised, both the Jacobins and the Girondins accused the other of Federalist ideas, Federalist conspiracies and Federalist policies, 
while vehemently denying that they would ever jeopardize the French Republic. A republic that both proclaimed to be one and indivisible. But if we know that the term became heresy throughout the early months of the National Convention, that still leaves us with the question of why. Why was something that had previously been celebrated now associated with treason and conspiracy? The reasons for this are various, but it's worth exploring three notable factors. Grey History needs your support. If you're enjoying Grey History and you'd like to continue to enjoy Grey History, I need your help to bring you more of the show you've come to love. With full-length bonus episodes, episode extras, the new community Discord, and an interruption-free version of the show, there's a range of great perks that come with doing your part to keep Grey History on the air. So just click the link in the show notes or the first link on greyhistory.com and sponsor the show today. Those members on the True Revolutionary tier already have early access to episode 63, The North Rebels, and I guarantee you will absolutely love it. So help keep Grey History going and help ensure that there's more Grey History waiting for you tomorrow. Support the show today. Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre-war disputes, We then go through the war itself and eventually reach the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, some unbelievable human achievements, and some all-too-familiar examples of greed, self-dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Firstly, with the establishment of the National Convention in September 1792, it could be argued that that body represented the national will. Unlike previous assemblies, the convention had been elected by universal male suffrage, providing the convention with a clear mandate to govern on behalf of the entire nation. 
As such, if local authorities in the departments were seen to be resisting the convention, they weren't just opposing the central government, but rather the will of the people, the will of the sovereign power. Now, for some, the independent actions of local authorities might be considered good government. These authorities know their regions, they know their communities, and their policies and approaches may simply be reflective of their bespoke situations and the desires of their constituents. But for others, deviating from the decrees of the national government, and by association, the decrees of the nation's will, was unacceptable. Furthermore, not only was the independent action of regional authorities increasingly viewed as philosophically impermissible, but it was also seen as undesirable for pragmatic reasons as well. In early September, the Jacobin Club heard arguments in favour of abolishing the departments altogether. Francois Chabot, then a member of the Legislative Assembly, complained that the existence of the departments needlessly frustrated the implementation of national decrees, and thus was in favour of their abolition. Making the dramatic assertion that the deputies of the National Assembly had only created the departments in order to ensure that they had a job to go to after the Assembly dissolved, the soon-to-be member of the Convention made it clear that he wished to right the mistakes of the past. Thus, as early as 1792, what we see here in the debates of the Jacobins is a forceful rejection of not only federalism, but the limited decentralization that was currently in place. Decentralization which had previously been endorsed by the National Assembly. Secondly, in addition to frustrating the national will, many Jacobins came to oppose federalism for reasons relating to existential struggle. With the Revolutionary War erupting in 1792 and expanding in 1793, the stresses and necessities of wartime spurned great changes in the nation's attitudes towards decentralization. Faced with foreign armies, royalist rebels, and counter-revolutionary conspiracies, many Jacobins reached the conclusion that a strong and centralized government was not only desirable, but required to save the republic. It's for this reason that they advocated reforms like the representatives on mission, sent to monitor every department and army, as well as the new Committee of Public Safety, established to streamline the operations of the government. Critically, in the view of many Jacobins, the Republic's strength was its unity. This was its greatest asset. The unity of the Republic and the new nationalistic spirit that this unity had encouraged were fundamental necessities for the revolution's survival. It was patriotic duty that compelled volunteers from across the country to fight and die for the Republic, far away from their fields and homes. It was national solidarity that allowed all of the nation's resources to be utilised in the nation's defence and managed and deployed in the most effective means possible. Thus, the unity of the nation and the centralisation of the nation's various resources were crucial for maintaining the Republic's existence. In such circumstances, any effort to promote decentralisation 
was viewed with hostility. At best, the transfer of power to local administrations seemed misguided at a time of national crisis. As historian Jeremy Popkin notes, it suggested a retreat to the old regime, where the provinces of the kingdom had different laws, different cultures, and different priorities. From the perspective of many Jacobins, such a development would rob the Republic of its greatest strength, of its unity against all of despotic Europe. Such an outcome could have catastrophic consequences. Some Jacobin deputies expressed fears that greater regional autonomy could subdue enthusiasm in the departments to send men and materials to defend Paris. Others were concerned that decentralization could see the establishment of new legislatures, just like the state legislatures in America. If this occurred, it was feared that contradictory laws and self-interested policies could not only destroy national unity, but in fact foster civil war if multiple departments sought to substantially break with the capital. Put simply, in a time of national emergency, decentralization was an existential threat, even if it was well intended. But perhaps it wasn't well intended. The final major reason why federalism became the supreme heresy of the Republic is that many Jacobins came to see greater decentralization not as misguided policy making, but self centered scheming. Given the fact that the Girondins were the self styled champions of the departments, any move to empower the departments was soon perceived to be a move to empower the Girondins. Consequently, the Jacobins, already favourable to centralising power in their political stronghold of Paris, were having none of it. In a revolution characterised by fears of conspiracies and plots, in a revolution that had already been shaped by hidden agendas of ministers and deputies, the advocacy for greater regional autonomy came to be seen as yet more self-interested manoeuvrings. Perhaps the Girondins sought greater independence for the departments because they sought to become chiefs in their newly created chiefdoms. After all, didn't de Maurier advocate for Belgium's autonomy so he could become its prince? The Jacobins certainly thought so. Already finding plenty of reasons to oppose further decentralization on both philosophical and pragmatic grounds, the added element of perceived Machiavellian manoeuvrings was another factor in the revolution's increasing opposition towards federalism. Historian Alan Forrest summarizes the developing attitudes and notes in particular how advocacy for decentralization could be perceived as self interested policy which would be detrimental to a nation in crisis. Yet, when the word entered the nation's political vocabulary, there were few who were willing to lay claim to it, and with good reason. If taken literally, federalism implied a desire to break away from the centre, to put local or regional interests above those of the nation, even to withdraw that part of national sovereignty which the people of each city or department had invested in the National Assembly. It was primarily used as a term of abuse, its most salient quality 
been a willingness to sacrifice national unity for selfish gain and to risk breaking up the political integrity of France in pursuit of sectional advantage. It was a form of egotism and as such was held in deep contempt by Republican centralists and most especially by the Jacobins who seized every occasion to hurl abuse at those whom it suspected of this gravest of political crimes. So, by mid-1793, federalism was the gravest of political crimes, the supreme heresy of the Republic. Adding to these already negative perceptions were the Federalist revolts themselves, as the so-called Federalist rebels were forced into uncomfortable alliances with royalists and the monarchies of Europe, the term also became associated with counter-revolution, further making the crime of federalism even more egregious. By the time the Law of Suspects was passed in September 1793, partisans of federalism were singled out in the opening lines and equated with the partisans of tyranny and the enemies of liberty. It is with some irony that just a year prior, the Federes had been the partisans of liberty and the enemies of tyranny. To wrap up this episode, I want to explore one of the most consequential and fierce debates surrounding the Federalist revolts. A debate that we will routinely see as we explore the rebellion in upcoming episodes. Historians bitterly disagree as to what extent, if any, the Federalist revolts were, well, Federalist. Now, we'll unpack this as we explore the individual revolts, but it is worth noting that the diversity of opinion here is immense, and it cuts across ideological grounds. For example, many historians choose to present the so-called Federalist revolts as a misnomer. They argue that the Federalist rebels were not Federalist, and that they had no desire to fracture the one and indivisible republic. Historian Alan Forrest states that there was no ideology of Federalism, and no political movement in provincial France that sought autonomy from the centre, or expressed a desire to split the republic. Historian Paul Hansen agrees, claiming that neither the proscribed deputies nor the provincial rebels were truly Federalist or advocates of Federalism. Joining them in this view is historian Eric Hazen, a scholar with Marxist leanings who recently asserted, This rebellion is often referred to as Federalist, but the word does not denote any clear political position. It is more of a stigma, an insult or threat which is somewhat curious, given the positive sense of the words federation and federes at the time. None of the rebels, if I am not mistaken, aspired to a federal solution on American lines, still less to the secession of part of the French territory. So, what we have here is a clear view amongst some modern historians be they revisionist or Marxist, that the Federalist revolts were not seeking to impose any form of federalism. As such, some scholars make the case that we shouldn't even call these events 
the Federalist Revolts, as the Federalists were only Federalists in the eyes of their Jacobin opponents. Historian Michael Sydenham, for example, an expert on the Girondins, notes that the provincial movement might more accurately be termed the Republican Revolt of 1793. He claims that this would be a more accurate title since none of the rebel departments enunciated a truly Federalist vision of government. Now, to digress for a moment, Sydenham's claims that the rebellions can be considered Republican revolts is noteworthy. Historians also bitterly dispute as to whether these revolts should be considered revolutionary or counter-revolutionary in character. We'll save that debate for when we examine the individual insurrections, but it is worth noting that while some historians emphasise the republican and pro-revolutionary nature of these rebellions, others choose to emphasise royalist and counter-revolutionary components. As I said, pretty much nothing is agreed upon when it comes to the republican-slash-federalist revolts of 1793. Given this, and to get back on track, I'm sure it will come as no surprise to find out that respected scholars do indeed find federalism in the Federalist Revolts. While it's hardly surprising that contemporary Jacobins saw plots to federalise and fracture the French nation, respected historians, including modern scholars, do so as well. Historian Peter McPhee, for example, asserts plainly that some of the Girondins were attempted by secession. Others, such as historian George Lefebvre, note that some local authorities set themselves up as sovereign, an act that automatically promoted federalism by separating themselves from the one and indivisible republic. Now, as we explore the Federalist revolts of 1793, we'll take the time to see the Federalist aspects of various manifestos and actions alongside the undertakings which seem to refute accusations of federalism. But the point I want to make here is that not only do respected historians bitterly disagree on the objectives of the rebels, but they can't even agree on what we should call these events. As we dive into provincial France, get ready for a lot of grey history. We started this episode with the manifesto of the General Council of Marseille. To arms, Frenchmen, to arms. The national representation is violated. Your deputies are in irons. These were the first words of a manifesto which was published on the 12th of June, just 10 days after the purge of the Girondins. In encouraging their countrymen to rebel against the capital, you may think the Jacobins of Paris would seek to swiftly crush this nascent rebellion. But they didn't. Despite this treason in the eyes of the mountain, the rebels of Marseille were by no means the first priority. More than 400 miles south of the capital, a far more immediate threat lay to the north. In the days and weeks following the purge of the Girondins, many of the prescribed deputies and their allies in the convention either evaded or escaped arrest. Several would flee northwest, and they established themselves a little more than a hundred miles away in the Norman commercial centre of Caen. 
rallying departments from across Normandy, the fugitive Girondins allied with local authorities to create a new departmental force, a force destined for Paris. With senior military officers defecting to the rebel alliance, the new commanders proclaimed boldly that the Girondins would strike back. Allegedly, 60,000 men of the north would go to Paris and restore justice and liberty. With the capital undefended from a northern assault, the convention frantically assembled its own force to respond. Blood would soon be shed. Or would it? Thank you for listening to episode 62, The Federalist Revolts. In the next episode, we'll be exploring the insurrection of the North. As Girondins rallied in the Norman commercial town of Caen, we'll be examining the success and failure of one of the most widespread Federalist rebellions. For this episode, there is not an episode extra, but there is an entire bonus episode. This members-only questions and answers episode covers a wide variety of topics, and you absolutely don't want to miss it. As always, thank you so much to everyone supporting the show, as it's only with the support of the show's community that Grey History is able to stay on the air. Please don't forget to recommend the show to friends, family and colleagues whenever you get the chance, and I look forward to seeing you again shortly for the first deep dive into the Federalist Revolts. Of course, if you can't wait for more Grey History, well then there's more Grey History waiting for you right now by joining the Grey History community. With more than half a dozen full-length bonus episodes, as well as episode 63, The North Rebels, for those members with early access, there's plenty of Grey History waiting for you right now if you support the show today. One final welcome to the newest members of the Grey History community, and a special shout-out again to the extraordinarily generous Heroes of the Revolution, Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff, Auger, Kevin, Noel, Scott, and Andrew. Thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day. I interrupt this regular programming to bring you some alarming news. There's been some counter-revolutionary activity. I suppose it's a mark of the show's growing popularity, but unfortunately some reactionary fun sponges have recently left Grey History's first one- and two-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Usually, I would ignore such unenlightened behaviour and consider it an inevitable achievement of all noteworthy podcasts. But, besides complaining about my shitty jokes and apparently lack of detail, yes, you heard right, these reviews are quite literally impacting the discoverability of the show for new listeners. That, of course, is jeopardising this experiment in full-time production, which I think we can all agree we don't want to jeopardise. So, if you listen to Apple Podcasts in particular, and you haven't already done so, if you could please leave a written review, that would be absolutely amazing. Just go to Grey History in the app and scroll down to the review section and help me expunge this counter-revolutionary plot. Thank you again for all your help, and now, back to the show. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, 
a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.